welcome to the Hobby Tassel podcast. I'm Gemma. And I'm Candice. This is the podcast for creatives run by two fellow business owners who discuss the ups and downs of creative entrepreneurship. From dealing with imposter syndrome to celebrating new business milestones, we're here to talk about all of them with you. Hi, welcome to Hobby Tassel podcast. My name is Candice and today I'm going to be interviewing my co-host Gemma on how to teach calligraphy workshops. So I have experience teaching calligraphy workshops online, though, because it was during COVID times. Gemma has much more experience. She has done online and in person, and she's continued to teach calligraphy workshops, but I've stopped. So today I'm going to be interviewing her so you guys can get a feel of what it's really like to teach calligraphy workshops. So let's just jump straight into it because there's one question that is really important here, and it's the first question, which is, what can people expect versus the reality of teaching their first calligraphy workshop? Well, I think people have an expectation that, you know, when you start teaching, they have to be big workshops with 20-odd people, um, sold-out workshops, and that just isn't the reality. In fact, the reality that you'll get a sold out workshop every time is not the reality. And I think that's something that when people get started, they get disheartened by. And they think, oh, well, (laughs) I know these are popular, so why aren't mine sold out? And that's because they just realistically don't sell out all the time, including mine, you know, I've been quite lucky. There are phases where my workshops are popular and I'll get several sold out workshops. And then there'll be a phase where I have like a funky couple of months where the interest just isn't as high. So I guess that's one expectation versus reality is that, you know, you will see yourself selling out workshops all the time and that just isn't the case. Something else is that when you think about creating a calligraphy workshop, you think you need really fancy setup and you need all of these supplies. And have you seen pictures of calligraphy workshops before Candice where they have all these fancy goodie bags and they look really pristine? It looks almost like a tea party kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of your expectation of what you should be doing. And I'm here to tell you that you don't have to do that your students can still have lots of fun with a more basic setup and I don't want people to get put off because they see that fancy Instagrammable style setup and get put off from even starting. That is true because those guys have been doing workshops I would say for like at least five plus years and it's more catered towards the elegant like we're talking like brides, copper yeah yeah brides and like it's the uh copper plate lettering style and stuff like that the traditional style i agree with that as well as the expectation of the number of people i remember when i first started i was like oh should i should i make it like 15 available tickets or 20 available tickets what if it sells out and blah blah blah. and like i just like expected to do really well because one my price was very low and so i was like i think a lot of people are gonna sign up that didn't work I think only like five people signed up. Did I get bummed out by it? Oh, 100%. I was like, oh, this is weird. But also I had to remember that it was during COVID. So there was that, yes. But it it also didn't make sense afterwards that if I had my very first one to be 15 plus people. Like even I would say 10 plus is a lot for me now. If I were to do another workshop, I think max I would do is absolute max would be eight. And ideally, I would want six students uh, because it just feels to me nicer to have myself walk around the table and like be able to help every person, not just for like 30 seconds before I have to move on. That's something that I did not know until after teaching my first one. And I was like, oh, right. Okay. Mm. Yeah. yeah. You're right about the being kind of an ideal number because more people isn't necessarily better the number of tickets I advertise 
is 10 tickets per workshop. And when I reach 10 tickets, I advertise it as sold out. If someone asks like, oh, is there any chance I could bring my friends to this one? You know, occasionally there's flexibility. But I have found the sweet spot for me personally is eight to 10 people. And times I've gone above that, I love the liveliness of the group, but I have to start raising my voice. Not as in telling people off, but to get people's attention back, it's just harder to manage. It seems as soon as you go kind of over that 10 people number. So that's something to consider as well is, yeah, the number of people you have. Yeah, it's harder to control and therefore it would add time when you don't really have it because you've already set the time to be, yeah, that, yeah, that makes sense. Because it is harder once everyone's like lively. You don't want to really want to shut down the vibe, but you gotta got to move on to the next thing. I do have one more expectation kind of versus reality. And that is that online workshops would be really popular. And from my experience, in-person workshops have been more popular. I think, you know, with people being at home so much more often and working from home, people actually want to get out the house and not be on Zoom for a workshop. Interestingly, my online courses are popular, I think, because people get more of a sense of community because it's over a longer period of time. But one-off online workshops, for me personally, I found them not to be as successful. I I can agree. I would say if I were to meet up with someone or a group of people that I don't know, I would rather meet up in person than online. I mean, yeah, I could always blur up all the background, but it's still, to me, a little bit strange to do it because it's not work-related. It's kind of weird that I have to be on camera kind of thing. And even then, when I'm at work I genuinely don't like to be on camera and same goes with William he doesn't like to go on camera unless if everyone else is on camera I can see how online can be said to be more popular at least in your experience but then it's actually the opposite it being in person is more popular following up on this expectation that online workshops would be popular and that you would have loads of sales as you get started I want to take you back to when I first started workshops again after COVID. I <laughs> I basically had non-existent sales. At one point I had two workshop tickets for my online workshop and I was begging my sister. I was like, Amy, please, Amy, please fill the numbers. Help, help me out. Like, <laughs> please attend my workshop for free. And she was like, no. I'm like, please, please join Amy. So I had to kind of not beg, but I had to ask a lot of friends and family to attend in those early stages to kind of pad out the really early workshops where it was really quiet. I think that's something I want people to realize as well, that when you're getting started and you are a baby business, you're not going to get those sales (laughs) straight away. It does take time. There's actually a benefit to teaching your friends, like adding your friends and family in there for free as well, because you kind of get practice of teaching. Because you're basically thrown into the deep end, like especially if you set yourself up to be thrown into the deep end. First of all, it's the first time doing it. And second of all, you're teaching complete like random people that you don't know. Maybe you may have interacted with them on social media once or twice, but that's about it. And that, that in itself is very hard. Now that we have talked more about the expectation and reality of it, let's move on to the actual workshop itself. This is something that I've noticed that not a lot of people really think about too much. Okay, let's 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 talk about how long it go it takes for you to organize a workshop first. So, I typically book a workshop a month in advance if it's a venue that I'm familiar with and I know what sort of numbers to expect. If it's a new venue, I'll book 2 to 3 months in advance because I know that more marketing will be needed. When you first get started with workshops though, I'd recommend booking your workshop eight to 12 weeks in advance. So you have plenty of time to create the workbook, to do lots of advertising because it's hard work (laughs) initially to get those sales. So give yourself as much time as you can really. I typically actually book my workshops you know, several months in advance. So a month is kind of the minimum, but I have several months in advance where possible. 
Right. Yeah, because then you need to plan the actual thing. But at least once that planning's done, you can re- technically reuse that plan. And then the marketing aspect of it is what takes a long time because you can't really expect to get that many people in like one or two weeks. Guess how long it takes me to run a single workshop now, Candice? Total. From booking two it hours? in to advertising oh. to running it. Oh gosh. Hours? Or are we talking like days? Hours. This is just going to be a random number, but like 30? Four and a half. <laughs> oh, okay. Hold on. The reason why I said 30 was because I was thinking like, does this count like for like active hours or inactive hours or like, okay. So what, where is the four and a, four and a half hours? What is it for? So there's two hours of teaching. Half right. an hour travel each way, so that's up to three hours. An hour of advertising and an hour of booking it in and, you know, speaking to the venue, adding it to my website, adding it to Eventbrite. And the reason why it takes such little time is because I've streamlined my process now. So it really doesn't have oh. to take me that long. It took me so much longer when I got started, but I have refined my processes so that it's simple (laughs) and that it's nice and easy for me yeah right right yeah that makes sense because like back when I did craft markets it took me I would say eight hours to prepare now it takes me like two hours to prepare ish but since I stopped for a year I lost that touch and have to basically restart now but yeah okay that makes sense I mean, like when you first start off, four and a half hours is not going to make sense because you're so new and you need to contact all these other venues just to see who, you know, bites your your bait. <laughs> right. So now that we went over that, what does your itinerary look like? I don't know how in depth to go because not everyone listening will be calligraphers. What I do is I arrive 15 minutes early so that early birds aren't sat around waiting for someone so oh true i arrive 15 minutes early to set up but also means that if anyone arrives early i can make small talk and actually that first 15 minutes before the workshop starts give me gives me a chance to get to know some of the attendees and you know ask them if they're local where did they come from um have they been shopping like just like that way to make a connection before we even jump in. And I think that's really nice because then when we do get stuck in, people don't feel as awkward because they've chatted to me a bit before. And then, so once I've done the small talk and everyone's arrived, we go into the introduction. And when I say introduction, it's just me introducing myself because I personally hate having to introduce myself (laughs) in a group setting with strangers um, so I'm I just, the same, yeah. Yeah, I basically introduce myself, let them know I've been teaching, and then I ask them a couple of questions about calligraphy. Like, have they tried it? Do they know the differences between calligraphy and handwriting? Just try it. a couple of questions to prompt a little bit of engagement at the start. So I get them comfortable with that, answering some questions. And then I go into the content. So I teach the basic strokes, tricky letters, connections, words. And then at the end, I have a project. So that project is greeting cards and they create a card using their calligraphy. Something I would recommend for anyone wanting to run an art class is to have a project at the end, which is flexible with time. So occasionally some classes will be a bit slower. Sometimes students just whiz through the content and having a project where it can take a bit longer or be sped up is really helpful in my experience. Oh, that's good. Mm. That's good. So you're like, your workshop is flexible time for yourself. That way, you know, you don't go over time or you don't go under time. Like you're still at the expected finish window, which yeah. is pretty important for people, especially if they have other things to do. That's a really good point. Yeah, I like that one. Something I do as well is timings wise. I mean, I've done it so much. I have a gut feel of how long things take now. But I work to the speed of the slowest person. Say, for example, the basic strokes and they're practicing downstrokes. I'll wait until the last person's finished before moving on. And if we are waiting for that person, I don't 
just look at them like are they done yet I make conversation with the other attendees like how did you find that are you having difficulty is there anything I can help with to so that no one feels rushed but also the other attendees aren't just sat there waiting like they're still engaged to some extent right right yeah that that makes a lot of sense because I I would say I'm slow sometimes um, and or sometimes I'm fast. And if I'm sitting there awkwardly, it does make the experience a little bit weird. But if I'm the slow one, then I don't have to feel as pressured if I can hear that there's conversation going on anyways. It makes me feel like, oh, I can just continue doing my own thing until I mean, like, yeah, I am mindful of the time. But like, I also don't want to feel rushed. But yeah, that that's a good one. So how do you contact? the venues and let's say you've never let's go rewind time and say you've never contacted these venues before how do you approach them so brave people were going in person and asked to speak to the manager i am not a brave oh, person heck no. <laughs> <laughs> nah. um i i actually did a coaching call with someone the other day like oh you could go in in person i was like that's like really hypocritical of me because i wouldn't do that <laughs> um <laughs> So what I would personally do is see if they have an email address. Otherwise, potentially contact them on social media. I mean, you could call if you like calling. But again, that's something that is a bit out of my comfort zone. So emailing, I think, is fine. So I just contact them. I say, hey, um, I'm thinking about doing a click-free workshop. Would this be something you would be interested? I would include this as standard. So basically... A lot of the places I work with are cafes, or sorry, coffee shops, or cafe. You know, you know what I mean. So yep. what I say <laughs> is, would you be interested? I would include a cake and coffee in with the ticket price as standard, so that any bookings I get will automatically, like, put business away. Um, I was thinking about this date. Would this work for you? So basically, I briefly introduce myself. I let them know they would get sales from it if I were to book tickets. And then what was the last point I made? I forgot. <laughs> oh, and a date. Because what you don't want to do is give like a general question. If you actually say, does this date work for you? I think it prompts more action on the venue's part. Yeah. Rather than like, please let me, or rather than just giving out the date and saying, I would hope to hear from you soon because a lot. I feel like a lot of times just saying that it's so standard, but yeah, it's a better date for you to yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's something I always do whenever I kind of expect a reply from someone. I'll say what my schedule is and then go like, which of these work for you? And if none of them work, can you let me know what your schedule is like? That way, I feel like I'm a little bit more control of the time if they have never mentioned the time already. Sorry, I do have a follow up question. Because you said that you're booking a cafe. There's so many cafes all around the world. What are the characteristics of those cafes? Like, what does it look like inside your typical calligraphy workshop cafe? So I've worked across a few different venues now. I work mainly with a local... Well, yeah, everyone I've worked with pretty much has been local. Some of them I've been in before and I know the layout. And I think that is really important is... Being able to visualize if there's room for you. Because what you don't want is for them to say, yeah, we have a big table and it's right next to the coffee machine, which will be making that like screeching sound. You know yeah. when, you know the one. Yep. You, that's not ideal. <laughs> so you have to think more <laughs> about the practicality. Do they have room for you? Because a lot of coffee shops will be small as well. Yeah. Do they have room for you? I think what's more important to me is that... The venue is helpful rather than looks pretty because a venue that's helpful will make your experience so much better. I've had experiences where a venue has not been helpful. Either they've made no effort with the marketing and I'm left to carry all of it, which is fine if they're helpful on the day. But if I find they're not helpful on the day and they don't do any work with marketing to help me out, then... I'll look elsewhere. <laughs> I'll look for businesses that are more supportive. Right. Yeah. So it does make it a little bit harder for you because technically it is their home 
and if they're not like quote unquote home and if they're not really welcoming and supportive it's very hard to work with basically what i'm trying to get at is if you have a setup there and they forget about it and someone starts sitting down and they don't do anything about it then like prior to you arriving that's a bit of a pain that you have to approach them and go like oh and if they go like you can tell them to go away that you have an event there it's like, why didn't you help me i called you in advance to reserve something and then you don't put it up it's kind of like that um so you don't really want to work with someone like that so um that does make a lot of sense for them to be i didn't think about that i mean like yeah it's always on the back of my mind but like staff being helpful and supportive is really important both in the logistics and on the day so in terms of logistics i mean responded to me quickly about whether a date would work because actually if they don't respond for a couple of weeks then i now have two weeks less to promote it and that can be really challenging um and i actually cancelled with one venue because they were so poor at communication sadly and it took a long time for something to get booked in and actually i thought there's just not enough time yeah, that is quite painful. Like, it's because you're giving so much effort for you to, like, build your business and then, like, having someone go, like, sure, yeah, okay, like that. It's very, like, it's like talking to a brick wall. And so it can actually, because you're associating yourself with them for that time being, it can actually be hurtful to your own business. That's always not mm. that great. Can I make one more point about venues? So if you contact a venue and they don't respond... Don't think, oh, they hate me. They clearly don't think I'm a professional. Why did I even attempt this? <laughs> because when you're getting started, your imposter syndrome will be so high and you take a no answer to a rejection and that might not be the case. There's venues that I've worked with that are really great with communication, like via social media, but when I emailed them, it just gets missed because they're a coffee shop or a cafe and that's not how they contact their customers. The customers are in store. So email isn't something they regularly check. So don't take no answer for a rejection. It's fine to follow up. And it's fine to message several venues at once and try a few places. Yeah, that's definitely more time efficient. It's kind of like if you're looking for a job, you don't apply for one of them. Wait two weeks to see if they respond and then apply another one. You apply to like at least four or five or more of them all at once just to see which one replies and you can go from there. It's just being more efficient with your time. That's really important because technically time is pretty against you when you're trying to set up a workshop. So what do your workbooks look like? Like what is your, not setup, but what does your actual content look like? Yeah, so I designed my workbook on Procreate. Interestingly, I updated it a bit today. I think with workbook design, please do not get caught up too much on it looking perfect. Something that you could do is provide people with blank paper. <laughs> you know, when you're in school and you're creating art, they don't give you necessarily all these workbooks to give you they give you some free reign to do stuff so don't feel like you actually need a workbook in the first place it is really helpful <laughs> but it's not something you need to get started in terms of how mine looks I'm just continuously improving it so I'm happy with it today because I updated it but in a couple of months I'll probably think what was I thinking <laughs> and update it again so I think design wise it's fine. It does the job. I'm fairly happy with it. And my attendees that have joined have been like, oh, look at this. As they're flipping through, they're like, oh, I wasn't expecting anything this fancy. And my work, I wouldn't describe my workbooks as that fancy. <laughs> it's just students don't go in with the expectation that they're going to have some really fancy premium workbook, unless obviously you include that in pictures or something. Right. So if, when you're teaching, though, do you need... So what does your setup look like? Like, do you need a projector? Because I remember when I first started off, I was like, how am I supposed to show these people what I'm doing? That's why... That's the benefit, by the way, of doing online, is that technically you can shoot show a bird's eye view of your workbook. But when you're in person, it's a little bit more difficult. 
because you need to make sure everyone can see. So how does your setup look like? So I'm probably going to get some judgment for this because I know some people have scoffed at doing this, but it works for me and it's worked for a couple of years. So whatever. (laughs) I hold my workbook up to the class and I point to my workbook and I talk it through. And then if I can see someone is squinting, I will move (laughs) and go closer to that person so that they can see. And I talk it through, tell them to get on with it. And then I walk around and actually see how people are doing. So I, you know, in the workbook, I have descriptions, I have physical, or sorry, visual guides for people to work on. So I don't think having a flip charts or a whiteboard at the front is essential especially I think it depends on your group size so like I said my group is typically 10 people that's a manageable number if my class size went up to 20 then yeah I would get a flip chart or a whiteboard but I don't think you need that to get started so yeah I just have my workbooks I give everyone a pen and some greeting cards it's really not too fancy now I know you haven't done it because you're saying you're teaching the workbooks if Mm. like let's say someone doesn't want to do that and they Mm. have done zero research on how else what are some other popular ways that you know of like methods of teaching so having a flip chart or a whiteboard that they could point to and then either they create writing would have to be huge yeah so that's the idea that (laughs) and so this is why I am against it I do not want to be carrying a flip chart through bloody town, (laughs) the town centre, like walking for 15 minutes holding a flip chart. I am just not all about that. (laughs) So it works for some people. For me, it doesn't. I'm very happy with my workbook. Now, I will be teaching to some larger groups this year because I'm I'm teaching more corporate workshops. So... I will be looking at getting a whiteboard so that I can make my illustrations bigger. But I think something I really want to reiterate to people is that it's not essential. <laughs> I I think it's common practice for a lot of calligraphy teachers, but you can get by without it. And I think there's a lot of expectations as to how things are done. But you're your own boss. You are the teacher. You can decide how you want to teach. You know, you're not a part of a school that has a set curriculum and a way of teaching. You could be flexible and do what works for you. I do agree with that, especially the part where you're saying how, like, you know, it's a lot of stuff that you're carrying. Because I'm I'm in the middle of, like, creating the content for my next YouTube video, which is preparing for craft fairs. And one of the biggest tips I have, and I have a I wrote a checklist as well, and in that checklist that people can download it says a lot like at least four times be very mindful of the size of stuff that you're bringing because when I first started I basically brought over a hundred pounds worth of things with me because I was like oh I'm gonna need this I'm gonna need that I'm gonna need and now I'm like I brought maybe about 45 to 50 pounds of stuff only because like you kind of eventually learn what your own style is and what works for you some people might be able to handle that, but I'm small. I'm one person. Even if I have William helping me, he often needs to drop me off somewhere closer. And I would still need to like carry those up the stairs and stuff like that or or up a hill. And that's just painful. So if it works for you and it works for your audience, then why change it? So yeah, I would definitely not want to bring a flip chart with me. So when you're teaching mm-hmm. from your workbook, You kind of need to have a personality, right? Like you kind of need to be like in your teacher vibes. Do your teacher vibes need to include you being extroverted? I, so I would describe myself as an ambivert. So I can bring out- what is that? An ambivert. So an ambivert (laughs) is in the middle between extroversion and introversion. Ah. So there's times where I've done these personality tests and I'm an extrovert and somewhere I've come out as an introvert. And I describe myself as an extrovert, but I'm not a really outgoing extrovert. (laughs) I don't think you need to be an extrovert to teach a workshop, but I am coming from a more extroverted position. So I'll be interested to get your opinion more in a minute, Candice. But I think 
if you were introverted, you could focus more on like the cozy relaxation element of learning calligraphy. Whereas with me, like I actually crack some jokes. And what people don't realise is that I've cracked these jokes like 500 times now because I finally work. So oh I'm like, <laughs> this is going to make people laugh. So, <laughs> um, but it does make me laugh when people laugh and I've made someone laugh because I don't consider myself a funny person. So I'm like, oh, they believe I'm funny. But if you are introverted and shy, I think you can still teach workshops, but do it at a place that's comfortable for you. Do a local venue that you know and are familiar with, maybe have smaller class sizes and, you know, increase your sale price because it's like a more exclusive events. What would be your tips teaching when you're introverted, Candice? Well, the first one is definitely going to somewhere that you go to all the time. One thing for sure is anytime you're going to somewhere new, it's kind of like moving to a new school or moving to a new neighborhood. Everything's new. You're nervous on the road because traveling is, you, you don't know where the heck you're going, essentially. For me, it's like going to somewhere I'm very familiar with and is quiet because I don't like having eyes on me. I genuinely don't. Yeah, as an introvert and to give some context, I'm consistently 97% introverted. My friends know this too. Like a lot of my friends have messaged me and I would not reply them. And it's a normal thing. Like they know I'm, they just, they just go like, Hey, are you alive? And I go like, yes. And that's it. That's the, that's the end of the conversation just to check in on me. That's how introverted I am. So if you're on that level or you're, you know, more, a little bit more extroverted, you now know the baseline that I'm working with. That's why I think my preferred numbers is significantly smaller. Six and eight doesn't seem significant, but two physical people is very it makes a, it makes me. a difference it does make a difference yeah yeah so like six people is my comfortable number absolute max was eight and 10 is where i'm uncomfortable but if i'm forced to i'd do it um so smaller number of people going into a cafe that's quiet and that i'm very familiar with like i need to be familiar with the staff yeah so it doesn't feel weird like, I don't want the staff to look at me going like, oh, so that's what she's doing. So that has helped me as well with my nerves. So there's a couple of venues that I regularly teach at and the staff know me um, and they're friendly. And that didn't happen straight away. You know, it took a few workshops to get familiar with them and to yeah, build like those connections. Report. Yeah. But once they're built, then not only is it really nice from a teaching workshops perspective, but, you know, getting familiar with the people at these venues, it helps you feel like part of your community. So I am not from the town that I currently live in. And it's only since I started teaching workshops that I started to feel like an active part of the community. Aww. And it's something small, but genuinely, you know, knowing that I could pop into town and pop into these venues and see friendly faces is like a real comfort genuinely <laughs> um yeah. and since so starting my business and like connecting with other local business owners not necessarily venues but it's just really nice <laughs> it's like going into those small towns and everyone knows each other and you're like oh it must be nice but now you're like being part of that community so it is really nice then if you're talking about building rapport and you said that you need to go into these um, cafes and teach more often. What is your suggestion for a realistic time of teaching people? Because I know mine, but I want to hear about yours first. Like how many times should someone teach in a month? That's hard to say. Definitely do what works for you because something to consider is that a lot of you listeners will have full-time jobs. And although it may take, you know, a afternoon, an afternoon is a lot of time when you have a full-time job and your weekend is precious. So definitely book in as many as you're comfortable with. So at the moment, I teach typically one workshop, one workshop a month, but I will be increasing that this year to two workshops a month because I'm really wanting to increase my revenue this year. But I have the benefit that I am not in a full-time job. I have a part-time job, but I have that little bit extra flexibility so that if I do work on the weekend, I can take a weekday off. Right. Okay. So that's your um, experience with it. Now, I want to say my experience because I used to say I can teach probably three to four workshops a month. That's every single weekend because it's like, oh, it's just one afternoon. It's only two hours or like an hour max. It should be fine. 
Remember what Gemma mentioned earlier when she was saying like you need to spend a lot of hours on marketing and then you also need to spend a lot of hours on doing the actual thing, like four and a half hours and then the actual teaching portion and how much energy six or eight people can take out of you. Don't expect yourself to be able to teach four times a month, even if you have a full-time job or part-time job or you are doing this full-time. Because let me tell you, it is exhausting especially if you're introverted. Even if you are extroverted, it is exhausting. You have to think about like commuting there, going back, setting up, doing all those like sleepless nights because you're like concerned about the amount of times that or how many tickets will be get sold. So that's just, although we're saying go with your comfortable route, don't go in that. I'm going to teach four workshops this month and that's what I'm setting myself up for because you're going to be absolutely exhausted. Because now think about it. The timeline, because Gemma, you mentioned that you need eight weeks of marketing. That's like ideal. If you have one workshop back to back, or sorry, you have four workshops back to back, that would mean you would technically at one point need to market four workshops in one week. <laughs> like, Because you don't have that eight week gap in between. You have one week of gap in between. So that's where I think you teaching one workshop a month to start with works um maybe you can push it to two and some people might go like oh i can just teach one teach one afternoon shop and then teach one evening shop in one day uh sorry workshop in one day what's your experience with that so i have done that once before and although i enjoyed both workshops i definitely did feel less energetic in the afternoon workshop because i'd already talked for a couple of hours and even though I'd had a couple of hours break in between, you know, I had lunch and I had chance to gain some energy back, I still wasn't as energetic. So I would personally advise against it if possible. The something I did do is that I taught a workshop on a Saturday in one town and a workshop on a Sunday in another town. And that worked better for me though, because when I have a workshop coming up in a weekend, my brain is like, you have a workshop, you have a workshop, you have a workshop. Like I can't fully switch off. So I prefer if I am going to have two workshops that I book it in at the same weekend. Now, we spoke a little bit about marketing. What is your realistic success of marketing? Like if you were to, you know, we talked about that eight week already. Um, eight to eight to ten weeks of marketing. How successful is it? If I tried every single day, because I've seen you do that. So it's not always reliable. So sometimes that's quite frustrating <laughs> that you know I could put the same effort in each month and it gets different results. But something that has consistently worked for me marketing wise is actually my SEO. So having my website show up in local Google searches gets me a big chunk of my sales. I'm talking 40 to 50% of my sales come from SEO. So it's a game changer. And that's why I actually teach it in one of my memberships. Like it's something I really hone down on is how important showing up in local searches. For the other side of marketing, I think people shouldn't underestimate like old school marketing, email marketing and posters. I have had people that have booked onto my workshop because they've seen a poster in the venue and then they've booked onto my course as well. So, you know, I've made a 200 pound, more, more like 250 pound sale from a customer because they've seen a poster, which probably cost like 10p to print <laughs> so don't underestimate posters because the people who will be seeing them already go to that venue and they'll be more open to experiences at that venue so don't underestimate that also local facebook groups is what i like to use now i don't spam groups but i do post on them maybe once or twice a week in just the local ones to let them know of um, upcoming workshops and that's been good as well what I have been doing the last three, four months is asking my attendees where they have come from. Say like 40, 40 to 50% are SEO, 
And then I would say 25% are social media, like Facebook and Instagram. And then the rest, it's like word of mouth and posters. Oh, that's really good. Yeah, because then usually if it's like on Etsy and or websites, you can kind of see where they're clicking in from, but you don't really see where like they see the first trigger of what got them to consider taking your workshop. Let's pretend I'm new, right? I know nothing about calligraphy workshops and stuff like that. But it's like a weird question, but not really a weird question. <laughs> I'm I'm new. I don't know what teaching calligraphy is like, but I want I have calligraphy skills. And for example, let's say I only have about 400 followers or less. What would you say to me regarding the success rate of me booking in like six mm. people? Mm. So a good case study of this is actually um, someone named Sue, who is a member of my class to course method, which is one of my memberships that is about teaching. So I believe she has a smaller Instagram following. I don't know off the top of my head. It's definitely under a thousand. I think maybe even under 500. She has gone on to sell I think she had five people in her first one, eight people in her second one. And now she's made a connection locally and it's like 20 people. <laughs> so oh, wow. Instagram followers doesn't dictate how well your sales will be doing. It's largely about, you know, your website. Your website is really important. And occasionally I, it sounds a bit sad, but I feel I'm, embarrassed when I see my Instagram following is still less than a thousand and I've been at this for like four years and I think how is it less than a thousand still but then I remember that that really doesn't dictate my worth as like a creative and a business owner like I'm still making money as an artist it's just that I don't have that 1k number on Instagram right yeah I I know that for a fact because it even my Instagram, although I'm like over a thousand followers, Etsy knows that none of the sales are coming from Instagram. All my sales are coming from strictly from Etsy SEO. And for the people who do click into my website from my Instagram link, it's just to check it out really quick um, or to read my blogs. It doesn't really make that many sales. It could be a different story for a lot of people. Obviously, the more people that you have, the more exposure you get but you also have to remember if you're going to be teaching workshops you don't have a hundred thousand people following you locally yeah. <laughs> okay <Yeah>. they're <laughs> they're from all over the world um they're not going to fly over they might in the future maybe but they're not going to fly over just to attend your workshop so that's something that you kind of need to be aware of like your following is not super important that's a really good tip so we're wrapping up the interview soon but there's a really important question that, I mean, these are all important, but like unrelated, but kind of related. Has teaching calligraphy given you more confidence to utilize your skills outside of just workshops? So getting more comfortable. So the hardest challenge when you get started with workshops is feeling like you're someone worth teaching. <laughs> to feel like a professional. Generally, like I had this big mindset block about not feeling like a professional and that stopped me from teaching from a long time, even though I knew my stuff and I knew I could teach. So once you've taught a workshop and, you know, people don't boo at you <laughs> and that they're nice, um, you gain more confidence to put yourself out there as an expert because, you know, it's likely you have been absorbed into the world of art that you're immersed in. So I'm in the calligraphy bubble. And that means, you know, I started to become comfortable creating blog posts, talking about calligraphy, creating, you know, Facebook lives where I show myself on camera. That's like really scary as well uh, to get started with. I think just putting myself out there and also... I think just putting myself out there more in the community, you know, connecting with other local business owners, feeling like I belong. 
because I'm out there and I'm out doing something in the local community. So I just want to say, Gemma would not be feeling like this if she didn't jump the gun and just started teaching. Like, you, you're saying you would not have gotten these opportunities unless if you actually just did... If you sat there and let the imposter syndrome take over forever and, like, you just never did teaching, you would not have gotten these opportunities. What's one opportunity that you did not expect to come out of teaching calligraphy? Um, so I've recently booked a large workshop for a wellbeing program with a large retailer in the UK and it's like quite a big name <laughs> so I feel <laughs> I feel really happy and you know I've been telling people I know like oh have you heard like <laughs> uh these people contacted me <laughs> um and that just made me feel it 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 helped my ego a bit <laughs> um <laughs> but I think that the main opportunity I didn't expect to come from teaching workshops is just the community aspect and feeling part of my local community. And, you know, some people who've who've lived in their towns forever may not realise the importance of that. But if you are living somewhere that isn't your hometown, that is something that's really special. That's really cute. Yeah, because, like, I mean, if you're staying home all the time, and you don't leave, you can't really expect yourself to be part of something. That sounds so sad. I didn't mean to say it like that, but like, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like, if you don't involve yourself, you're never going to be part of something. Yeah. And it's not that they're not inviting. It's just that sometimes, yeah, I get it. Anxiety can control a lot of your actions. But Gemma and I are just trying to say, you should try to get out there. Like, not right now if you're uncomfortable with it, but like build the build up to it. And even if you're not 100% confident, try it out. My biggest tip as well, if you're feeling nervous, is to literally just book it in, tell people you're doing it, and then work everything else out later. I think people would be shocked if they knew actually how unprepared I was when I said I was going to do something. <laughs> <laughs> but I know from my personality that I will procrastinate if I'm uncomfortable unless I announce that I'm going to do something. So for example, my first calligraphy by Christmas course, I didn't know exactly how it was going to work, but I told people I was doing it anyway. Um, same with my first online workshop. I did not know what technology I was using. I had no experience with streaming by calligraphy at all and I was really scared of it. But I told people I was doing it anyway. <laughs> and then I worked out later. And that, from my experience, gets you moving if you're scared to do something. Just work it out later, out of panic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Diamonds are made under pressure, you know? Yeah. You, <laughs> my you name just, is Jen. can't just blow on it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so... I want people to know a little bit, because today we kind of went over a lot of information. We genuinely did. This is not information that you can really grab out of someone and learn everything within this hour of listening to our I love how we said this is going to be a short one, but it's not. It's, it, it never it's just is. how much information that you have. <laughs> yeah. Where can someone, I guess, get more out of you? So people can book a one-to-one -one coaching session with me, but also... My key resource is called the Class to Course Method. And this is a membership I've created for artists that want to earn money through teaching. So learning how to teach a workshop, but also how to teach a course. So I teach how to teach a live course where you would send out supplies and how to create a passive course that is pre-recorded that students can access. But something I then teach as well as how to refine it all because it could be a lot of work. As I said, workshops now take me four and a half hours. It took me so much longer until I refined my processes. So that's something that's a big emphasis as well as how, you know, to polish things up. So it makes your life easier. So this membership is open at the time that this episode will be going live. I believe the enrollment window will be open for two weeks but then it won't be open again for another few months because um, it's limited time enrollment. So if you are interested, definitely go check it out now. 
and join the community as well. There are other members that you can connect with that are in similar shoes, that are working through similar fears, but also that are having successes and, you know, get comfort from seeing other people who have been in your shoes succeed and celebrate each other. And I really like that about the community that I've started to build is that sense of community and other people celebrating other artists. I just, yeah, <laughs> I really like it, but I'm very biased because I created the membership, obviously. <laughs> but you wouldn't have created it unless if you were confident that it works and other people have vouched, like tes- there are testimonials that it does. It's not that I'm saying that it does work, but that it is rich with like information Mm. something i have done a little bit differently to other artists is that i think it's really affordable so the membership is 27 pound a month so that's like half a half a workshop ticket a month and if you can't sell you know a single workshop ticket in a couple of months after working with me, then we can discuss you getting a refund. Um, It definitely, in my opinion, pays for itself because you will be making revenue that you wouldn't have done otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what is the name of your course again? So it's the class to course method. So that is my membership for artists wanting to teach. I also have the Creative Biz Success Society, which is for artists just wanting to earn money in general. If you become a class to course method member, you also gain access to the other membership. So it's a bit of a mouthful. So I'm just going to call it CBSS. So that is more the foundation, things like setting up your website, niching down, email marketing, whereas the class to course method is more specific to teaching. Mm, Okay. That's really good information. So to wrap things up, I just want to thank you, Gemma, for giving me your time today and basically even though you're even though if you're my co-host mm-hmm. i basically picked at your brain and you regurgitated all the information which is a lot of information so thank you for spending the time with me and doing this interview <laughs> you're <with> welcome me. <laughs> um and i have been doing workshops for quite some time now so it's quite nice for me to be able to talk about what i do and at like a brain brainy box no brainy box isn't even the phrase is it <laughs> brain box i can't okay i don't know what you're okay. trying to say basically i wanted a chance to act like i knew what i was on about which i do um <laughs> but it's the evening so clearly my english is not coming out very well but you can continue to learn more with me as we mentioned i have these memberships and you know if you want to reach out and you have any questions feel free to message me on instagram and Next, I'll be grilling Candice at some point <laughs> about stationery business oh, dang. <laughs> stuff. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we'll wrap this up. We will speak to you in two weeks' time. Bye, everyone. <laughs>